The Scent Magazine's belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored episode 151. We are talking in this episode to Reverend Liz Theo Harris. She is co-chair along with Reverend Dr. Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. We're going to talk to her about what that means and why people are marching across the country for the next 40 days or so to demand action on poverty in the United States and around the world. But before we get started, just a reminder that we all count on our monthly supporters to make this podcast possible, and we couldn't make the show without your support, so if you're a regular listener and want to support the show and aren't doing so already, head to dissentmagazine.org slash belabored to sign up to be a sustaining member, and it takes only a minute. This episode is also brought to you by Socialism 2018. The Socialism Conference is four days of political education, debate, and camaraderie. It takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago, featuring activists, authors, people just like you from across the country and around the world. Featured speakers include Boots Riley, Dave Zirand, Nan Gopal, Amy Goodman, and many other illustrious minds, including our very own Sarah Jaffe. To learn more about the conference and register, go to socialismconference.org. And now for the news. Minneapolis activists celebrated last June when it finally pushed through a landmark $15 minimum wage bill with a near-unanimous city council vote, following a trend that's sweeping the nation of $15 an hour wages. The new phase-in for the wage started to roll out in March with a boost of a few dimes to $10 an hour. Yet, even though it withstood a court challenge brought by local employers, Even that small pay hike has apparently gotten tripped up by bosses who are resisting, and that includes McDonald's, the brand that originally inspired the Fight for 15 campaign for low-wage workers. Even before the $15 wage ordinance was passed, workers were reporting that their bosses were cheating them. According to a survey analysis by the labor group Satool, half of all respondents reported facing wage theft including two-thirds of janitors, who are one of the key groups that they're organizing, and we've covered them on Belabored before. So not only is the wage itself a real issue, but enforcement is as well. And the city will have to rely on grassroots community groups like Satool for doing the heavy lifting of helping workers get educated about their rights, filing complaints, and pressuring employers on the ground. Meanwhile, progressives are also fighting a wage reform preemption bill, which preempts cities across Minnesota from raising minimum wages higher than the statewide level. On the ground, Satool's responsible contractor policy then has become even more vital. It's designed to establish a sector-wide framework of wage and safety standards, and it's slowly spreading across the janitorial workforce in the city's big box retail industry. McDonald's worker Stephen Suffrage says he's still owed the full minimum wage from the first few weeks of the year, and he argues that everyday local workers are struggling just to earn enough to survive and are going to struggle even harder to get that full $15 minimum wage when it kicks in due to the city's glaring social and racial disparities, and the Twin Cities, mind you, have some of the highest income gaps in the country. 
it's really not about the money. It's about the justice that that be for me. It's kind of like I'm on a fixed income, but for me, it, it stings to let to to know that you've been taken advantage of. That's my main concern. Um, and you said that this is everyone at your McDonald's outlet. Pretty much, mostly. We don't know how many people to be exact, but we do know that there has been written and check stubs presented showing that this payment has not been there. It it really hurts me to see that uh, taking place, especially when we fought so hard and then they're just going to ignore us kind of like we don't exist. They're like, so what? You know, what's 30 cents uh, or what's whatever? You know, that's just my case. In other cases, it could have been more. I have heard and I do know that there are some Hispanic workers that have been warned if they, you know, gradually go about this, that, you know, it's just, oh, we're going to pay, we're going to pay and all this kind of stuff. And they try to kiss up and and nothing seems to be being done in the time that we think that it should be done at. We we fought publicly for years just for this to happen, and to have them coattail and tell other people that they are paying these wages when we have written proof on our um, check stubs that this is not being paid, or uh, that it wasn't being paid. Mm-hmm. And what was the response of the government? The mayor is on our side. The mayor is on our side from what I understand and from how I'm involved in it. And I've been involved in it. I've been on seven strikes. I've been to Trump Towers. I've been around. So I know that he is on our side. And I and I think I could speak for him that he supports the workers here in Minneapolis that have been wronged. And he is very adamant about getting these funds back in the pockets of the workers. The, the respect of the workers is very, very, very bad. I mean, they disrespect, I, I, I'm, I'm an African-American. I like to say I'm an African-American, even though I'm mixed with black, white, and Cherokee Indian. I like to say that I'm African-American because I feel like they have left us out of the picture. I mean, they've left the, the Hispanics. They, they try to take advantage of them. They try to take advantage of us. And, and yes, my, my, my manager, my, the owner of the McDonald's that I'm at is black, but still, I think that some of the things that management say to them or say underneath their breath to them is very disrespectful. And um, people get burnt there. They tell them to put mustard on it. There's, People that uh, need Tylenol, all that kind of stuff. They they have just no first aid kit whatsoever. It's not full. It's not it's not equipped to deal with people that may turn ill on a shift. I mean, I've been up here for the majority of my life, but I'm from the south, and we have a lot more benefits here in the north than we do in the south. A lot, and I and, and, and I just want. I just want us to be a beacon, a light 
to spread, you know, around. And, and how can we do that if we're covering the light? How can we do that if we're mistreating employees or we're not giving them paid sick leave, which has been won? I mean, there's people that are recovering it now, but still, they're still taking advantage of people that cannot speak for themselves. I just believe that this is, it's taking a toll, but, you know, through the support of these systems here, the unions and the SATUL members and, and, and mayors that believe in the people that are recovering these lost wages, that this will be fixed. This needs to be fixed. It should have been fixed. We won this. We signed for this. We stood up nights for this. Some of us did it voluntarily. We didn't even ask for money to do this. We, we step out and we try to do this because we know what we want justice. That was Stephen Suffrage, a Minneapolis fast food worker and member of Satool. New York's universities have been the site of a lot of labor strife in recent weeks and months, and this week we bring you an update from two of those struggles that overlapped at the new school. From May 8th to the 13th, the 852 student workers of student employees at the new school, or SENS UAW, went on strike, disrupting the last full week of classes at the university by refusing to hold their classes, grade assignments, or perform any of their other duties. They picketed outside of school buildings. Professors, in many cases who were not part of this particular union, canceled classes or held them outside of the building in order to support the picket line. Student workers at the new school unionized in May of 2017, but were not recognized until that August when the NLRB ruled for the union. The union has been bargaining since September 2017 and has reached some agreements with the university, but a stalemate continues around wages, health care, tuition waivers, and perhaps most importantly, child care. The bargaining committee called off the strike on May 13th, writing in a letter in part, quote, Accordingly, while we will certainly make ourselves known at graduation and through continued direct action, we will not continue the strike on Monday. They continued, quote, Over the week of the strike, we had incredible picket line captains leading chants until they had no voice, making sure people were fed, watered, and sunscreened, and keeping all of us safe. We shamed the new school on the streets of New York City and on a national level, which will have a lasting impact and is impetus for further disruption. Our voices have been heard even on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and we successfully engaged the broader New School community to educate them on the legitimacy and importance of our struggle. They also noted their support for the cafeteria workers, which brings me to the second part of this news item. 45 New School cafeteria workers, who are members of Unite Here Local 100, were told that they would be laid off this summer, and in response, student organizers took over the cafeteria and remain there at the time of this recording, demanding the rehiring of the workers, the removal of the head chef, who workers say harasses them, as well as higher wages, better benefits, including tuition waivers, and worker-student control of the cafeteria. I visited the occupied cafeteria this week, talking to the student occupiers about labor struggles, the importance of organizing up and down the university, and in turn, they talked to me about the occupation. All right, can you get to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Lily Rosewilen. Excellent. Take us back to the beginning of the uh, mm -hmm. occupation. How did it come together? I wasn't fully a participant until the Tuesday that we came mm -hmm. and officially occupied. Yeah. Um, so I know there was a big meeting kind of like the Friday before that Tuesday mm -hmm. where somebody proposed the occupation and yeah. that was approved or whatever. Yeah. I got handed a um, 
flyer from the Maoist communist group um, mm -hmm. Monday morning before yeah. the occupation. And I read it. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm gonna show up. Yeah. Um, and then I did, and I've been here since. Yeah. yeah. So, what was your before um, this began? What was your sort of relationship and understanding of the cafeteria yeah. workers' situation? Well, I worked for a similar company to Chartwells mm -hmm. in high school, yeah. um, doing food, serving at an old folks' home. Mm -hmm. So I kind of I had like some amount of empathy for like it seemed like management was mm -hmm. like treating everybody like shit. Um, mm -hmm. and nobody, you know, it did not seem like a good place to work at all. Yeah. It seemed like the workplace was really tense and angry and unfair, and yeah. the people who had the closest relationships with the students, like, did not seem, did not have their own agency as mm -hmm. to how yeah. anything yeah. went on here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was really relatable. You have some sexual predator yeah. boss man in the kitchen. I think that anybody who's kind of worked in food service, oh yeah, that like yeah. that's their experience, and you just do what you're fucking told, otherwise mm -hmm. you're out of a job. Um, and in this case, they did what they were fucking told, and still, yeah, all of a sudden, you know, not just for the administration's profit yeah. were suddenly out of a job. When Look. did you find out that they were laying off the workers? Um, well, the email I did found, find out they were laying off the mm -hmm. workers, yeah. but I um, I wasn't pissed off. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was really confused. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seemed fucked up. I didn't feel like I had any... It was just like an email, like, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. it's like, but I realized that it was... I started <laughs> realizing like to be angry um, when I saw the flyers that the cafeteria workers were making that had, um, they have like pictures of like maybe I think two or three mm -hmm. cafeteria workers and then it just says a quote below about what basically what this change means um, and how it's going to affect yeah. their livelihood. Um, yeah. So I started questioning this change and then when when I was approached with uh, an already you know sophisticated organization mm -hmm. that again somebody coming to me and saying like this is happening yeah um, but this time it was yeah something to you know hopefully push back mm -hmm. yeah so how long have you been here now we're talking on Monday the 14th, I should say, into the... Uh, 13 days. All right. So two weeks tomorrow. Um, so how has the administration responded? I know they sort of said that they would talk to the workers and then backtracked. Yeah, so day, I think, two mm -hmm. or something of the occupation, David Van Zandt came down and said, everybody gets their David jobs. David Van Zandt is... The president okay. of the new school. Um, came to the occupation after initially asking three students and three cafeteria workers to come mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. an administrative office. Yeah. We said, no, come to us. He came, said, all the workers get their jobs back. 
everybody was like, awesome, great, big victory. Yeah. Um, but also, we're staying here. That was completely just stuff, words in his mouth. And then the next day at 5 p.m., um, some union reps from Unite Here 100 mm -hmm. came to us again mm -hmm. here at the cafeteria and basically said that um, they had gone back to the administration to talk and none, nothing concrete had, had changed. Yeah. Their, their offer was um, still really crappy and had not met any of our demands yeah. and definitely not every single job back here in the cafeteria. Um, but it, but the afternoon David Van Zant came yeah. to speak to us, he also sent an email to the mm -hmm. entire student body saying, hey, I went to the occupation and I told all the workers they got their jobs back. Yeah. So that was a big so moment you have it where... In yes. Um, that was a big moment in terms of who was coming in this space and who was active in this space because so many of the students saw that email thought it was over. Yeah. They've thought it's been over for like 10 days. Yeah. Um, so in that, that has been, I would say, the most effective weapon against us mm -hmm. that the administration has been using are these emails that go out every three or four days now that basically completely... Um, immobilize students by s making it seem in very um, ambiguous language that yeah. we're gone yeah. or we have no reason to be here any longer. Yeah. That was Lily from the Occupied New School Cafeteria. You can find more information about all of this at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. New York University's new Abu Dhabi branch is supposed to shine as an example of the 21st century university campus smack dab in the Middle East. But instead of presenting an academic oasis in the midst of the Emirati neoliberal empire, the project has turned out to be a bit of a cesspool of labor abuse, according to a new report by a team of activists and academics at NYU known as the Coalition for Fair Labor. They argue in their report that from the time of construction, beginning around 2009, quote, it was known that forced labor conditions were typical in the United Arab Emirates, including at the administration's planned work site. And yet, five years later, the conditions were persisting and still further illuminated through a third-party audit showing that workers had systematically had their passports confiscated and were exposed to coercive, often forced labor conditions. An accompanying New York Times investigation revealed the everyday misery that the workers experienced, including housing in isolated, squalid encampments, 11-hour workdays, restricted cell phone access, and poverty wages compounded by unaffordable living costs and recruitment fee-related debts. The analysis points out that even today, NYU Abu Dhabi migrant workers who are employed as security guards, cafeteria staff, and other operational jobs remain unprotected and precarious under NYUAD's weak labor code of conduct, which lacks transparency as well as effective enforcement mechanisms. In the first several years of the NYUAD project, an estimated tens of millions of dollars in unpaid debts have accumulated, but NYU has reportedly unilaterally reversed its initial reimbursement scheme. Hmm. 
NYU, however, has repeatedly defended its labor code, which includes some basic protections, including barring recruitment fees, at least officially, providing, at least officially, scheduling regulations, and providing something like sick pay and overtime if they ever get around to enforcing it. NYU Abu Dhabi has called the CFL's report incorrect and inflammatory and pointed out that they overlooked another audit report published by a separate firm. Though that report's conclusions are overall positive, it warns of serious risk of labor code violations in crucial areas like contracts, fair hiring practices, and working hours. The CFL contends that NYU has fallen behind industry standard practices while it should be striving to surpass them. The activists are now calling for full freedom of movement for the workers, access to justice for migrants, and above all, the basic right to decent work. Not very 21st century of them to expose workers to medieval back-breaking forced labor conditions, but such is the irony of neoliberalism. This one is a somber story and a little bit personal. Friend of the show, George Chicarello Mar, lost a friend this past week when his roommate Pablo Avendano was killed on the job delivering food for an app-based gig economy company called Caviar. The incident was heartbreaking for Pablo's friends and raises questions of labor conditions in these companies, the incentives provided by giving higher delivery fees in bad conditions, and more. George joined me to talk about the situation, the organizing campaign that has been sparked by Pablo's death, and the worker cooperative that Pablo was also a part of. Okay, so yeah, tell us uh, tell us what happened. So uh, Saturday evening, um, my friend, comrades, roommates, and all around just sort of wonderful, uh, you know, presence in my life, Pablo, aka Pablo Barbanegra was working a shift for Caviar Food Courier Service in Philadelphia. It had been rainy. The conditions were not ideal. And um, in just in the course of just a quick uh, shift, um, he ended up being struck by a car and killed at 10th and Spring Garden in Philadelphia. Um, yeah. The last few days have been sort of a period of, of outrage and anger and mourning and sadness and also questions, you know, raised questions of, policy alternatives with regard to bike safety in the city, all of which are very, very important. Um, but uh, I think really one of the most important things that needs to be brought out, in part because Pablo is an anarchist and a communist, he believes in radical yeah. transformation of society, um, yeah. is that we need to be able to diagnose the source of this, right, the source of this yeah. ostensible accident. And we know that very few things are really uh, fully uh, accidents. Um, we're talking about an economy that demands that people go out um, as independent contractors, as they do for caviar, um, mm -hmm. that they work under dangerous conditions, that they actually incentivize work under dangerous conditions. Um, and so, in other words, if you're someone who's strapped for cash, it makes more sense for you to do the dangerous work and take bigger risks um, yeah. because otherwise you can't uh, make ends meet. I mean, this is how the business model works. Um, and on the flip side, of course, there's no protection, there's no insurance, there's certainly no life insurance or anything um, when it comes to these, uh, you know, these so-called gig economy jobs where they effectively outsource any kind of protection that you're going to receive to some other entity, whether it's, you know, Obamacare or, uh, you know, or whatever else. Um, and so, you know, part of the question that I think people are trying to raise is why is it that people are being forced to work under these conditions and take these risks? And why is it that, for example, my good friend, 
uh, you know, was killed by this economy and that many other people are, you know, are hurt and injured and killed um, by this kind of work, um, work under dangerous and, and, and some, you know, suboptimal uh, conditions, uh, certainly. Yeah. And, you know, again, this is my roommate, so this is where we'd sit every morning yeah. and talk about the fact that he didn't want to do this and talk about the fact yeah. that he wanted to do something different and was trying to figure out how to do that. Um, yeah. This is not an idealized situation of flexibility um, and right. economic choice. No one is really choosing to do this kind of work. No one is really choosing to be an Uber driver. It's just they've got right. like shitty choices, you know, shitty things to choose from, shitty options. Yeah. And so you make yeah. decisions based on those options. Yeah. And so this company in particular, right, you said they, they incentivize the the worst conditions, right? They What do they charge? More for delivery and when it's nasty out? Is there like sort of surge pricing the way like Uber has it? Yeah. No, absolutely. And this is exactly what, um, you know, how, how the operation works because otherwise they know, mm-hmm. just as Marx knew of early capitalism, that people don't choose to go into factories and work for 12 hours when they could stay out. And they have to be incentivized. They have to, in some cases, be forced uh, into it. And it's not like there are no alternatives or no options, uh, you know. Okay. Um, people act as though this is a natural terrain for economic exchange. Maybe at this moment in history, this is just the way that things are. But you know what? Pablo was also a member of, of what's called Sparrow, a, a courier service that also does food delivery, but is a workers' mm-hmm. cooperative, right, um, yeah. that is also struggling under these neoliberal conditions and struggling to make enough money for people to be paid uh, decently, yeah. um, but doing so in a way right? based on, you know, really the best kind of organizing, the best kind of uh, arrangement of what Marx would call the relations of production that you could imagine at this moment. Yeah. Caviar, when I first saw this, I was like, what is caviar? I can't, and then I was a little blown away that you have like a food delivery service that's literally called caviar. Um, Like, come on, rich people. Um, But, yeah, there there are so many of these companies that I hadn't even heard of this one yet. And that, and the, you know, it's called caviar because, of course, you're talking about people who are in a, and whatever. I mean, the bosses are really to blame. But at the same time, this is a business that's for rich people, right? It's to deliver for people that are willing to pay $10 to f- deliver $10 worth of food, right? right. Um, and so it's also really something that plays to really the worst of the worst of, you know, of wealth accumulation in this day and age, which is the, the you know, desire to be utterly lazy when it comes to having everything delivered to you um, and not being aware of or not giving a shit, honestly, about uh, the kind of conditions that this forces other people into. Looking at, you mentioned everything from bike safety to thinking about why people have to do this work. What are some of the, the options that you and, and your your friends in, in Philadelphia are organizing around in the wake of this? I mean, I think the first demand that people are putting forward is for caviar to cover all funeral uh, expenses. Mm-hmm. But, of course, this doesn't bring our friend and comrade back, and much less right. does it change the conditions. Ultimately, we want to see caviar abolished, that form of work abolished, the economy as we know it abolished because Pablo and, and, you know, and those around him are, of course, revolutionaries and and people who want to get to the origin and the root of what is going on in contemporary society and radically transform it and rebuild it on a different basis. Um, And so uh, the task in that sense is always to begin from these small measures, these small demands, um, and from this individual case, which is one of, you know, hundreds and thousands across the country, and to build uh, a much broader campaign that pressures companies like Caviar to sacrifice some of that profit that they're raking in um, through the sort of blood and sweat 
of these bikers um, and to, to assume some of that risk and to assume some of the obligations to protect people and provide, provide health insurance and provide benefits if they're going to be employing these people and making a profit off of their labor. And so how can people keep up with the, the campaign and the, the work that you're doing around this? Um, we'll be launching a campaign uh, targeting caviar uh, very soon, um, and I think people can keep their eyes peeled for that. There's also a GoFundMe that people can find on Twitter and Facebook to support, in the meantime, the costs um, for uh, Pablo's family um, with regard to his, you know, his burial um, and, and other costs. Um, and I would just urge people other than that to pay attention to what's going on in this so-called gig economy, which I don't even want to call it that because that dignifies it too much when what it is is really a hyper-exploitative economy that seeks to strip away really any kind of what minimal protection people had mm -hmm. um, and force them to work um, in the kind of conditions that are not an abstraction, right? They lead to the death and the, and the injury of, of actual, real, concrete people like my friend Pablo. That was friend of the show George Ticarello Mar, who is also the author of some books you should read, including Building the Commune and Decolonizing Dialectics. Before we move into the interview, I'd like to remind you all that this episode of Belabored is brought to you by our monthly sustaining members and by the Socialism Conference, which takes place July 5th through 8th in Chicago and features activists, authors, and people just like you from across the country and around the world. And yes, I will be there speaking on the value of making trouble with none other than Francis Fox Piven. It's going to be fun. The conference is packed with talks on everything from rebuilding the labor movement to eco-socialism to debates around topics like gun violence, release, resisting police oppression, socialist and elections, and the fight for universal health care. There will also be discussion about current movements from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to Lessons from the Teachers' Revolt, featuring voices from the front lines of the strikes. The conference is not only a space to learn about rich revolutionary traditions and the basics of Marxism, but also to discuss wide-ranging ideas, including breaking down the gender binary, neoliberalism in higher education, imperialism, and disability rights. To learn more about the conference and to register, visit socialismconference.org. Half a century after Dr. Martin Luther King set out on a march to demand equality now, the poor are still marching today, still impassioned, and still, to quote Dr. King, coming to demand that the government address itself to the problem of poverty. I caught up with Reverend Liz Theo Harris on the road this week, who is co-leading with the 40-Day Poor People's Campaign, alongside Reverend Dr. William Barber. The longtime welfare rights organizer talked about why people are marching across the country, what they want from Washington, and how they hope to build power in the struggle to change lives back home in their communities. How did it feel to be starting off the campaign on a week like this, which is not only relevant historically, but also saw a hailstorm of other grim news on the national and international news front? Yeah, I feel like, you know, in recent months and in recent years, like every week, um, things just get worse and worse, right? And and I guess we shouldn't be surprised when there's 140 million poor people in this country and when we have politicians and, and people with power who, you know, uh, have such disregard for really for life um, and especially for for life of, of the poor and marginalized. But but definitely it felt really important to be doing the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival and to be kicking off our 40 days 
you know, at a moment when CHIP is being cut, when SNAP and, and public housing are getting work requirements, um, when there's violence happening all across the world where poor people um, are, are, you know, are being killed. And it felt like the time for people to take a stand, the time for people to do something that hasn't been done before, right? I mean, we on Monday had the most expansive wave of civil disobedience at, at state capitals and our nation's capital in history. Um, and so it seems that like, you know, in these times of, you know, extreme deprivation, of extreme racism, of extreme poverty, of extreme militarism, um, to have people saying, and especially to have poor people saying, um, and low-wage workers saying, and folks that are experiencing homelessness saying, and moms that have lost their um, their kids to the lack of medical care and to and to overall poverty saying uh, that we uh, are going to to engage in a season of organizing and we're going to build a movement and we're going to risk arrest and we're going to go you know go to jail and and do what we need to get we, we need to do to raise our voices, to make, you know, um, to make our voices heard and to, and to, to show that we're prepared to keep on organizing, organizing, organizing until, you know, life is different for everyone. The word poor people um, in your campaign is, is oddly a little bit strange. I mean, it seems like it's a political stretch even when people just talk about workers or labor, right? Um, right why do you think right. we, we sort of lack the political language? And, and do you think that's a piece of the, um, the conversation that you're trying to stir right now? Because for those of us who have been observing the labor movement, one of the perennial barriers that people seem to run up against in this country is just getting people to recognize themselves as workers. No, that's right. I mean, it is really important in this campaign that we call the names of 140 million people who are poor and low income, um, that we put poverty and poor people back on the agenda. I mean, for 50 years, there's been a concerted attack on poor people and on working people and on workers, you know, in this country. Um, wages, you know, have stagnated and declined. Um Poverty has grown 60% in 50 years. And, and that's, that's just official poverty level numbers. I mean, if you, if you look at the supplemental poverty measure, you know, I mean, the increase in poverty has just really grown exponentially. And, and um, at the same time, as our politicians and our national discussion has refused to basically talk about the poor or when some politicians do talk about poor people, it's just to, it's just to blame folks for all of the country's problems. But mostly people just talk about the middle class or people striving to be in the middle class when the reality is that almost half of this country uh, is just trying to make ends meet, just trying to take care of, you know, themselves. And, um, and so it is a, a part of this campaign to have the 140 million poor people start to hear their names, hear their condition, and come forward in an organizing drive that says that we shouldn't be ashamed of being poor. We shouldn't be ashamed of using the word poor. What should be shamed is a country that impoverishes so many, that makes people have to work so hard for so little, that makes people have to work two, three, four jobs just to try to, you know, feed their kids. And that um, 
that we have a power and have always had a power. And throughout history, you know, poor people have banded together and, you know, won labor rights and won the abolition of slavery and won women's rights and won, you know, the rights to desegregate, you know, our schools and our uh, public institutions. And, and that it's really important for us to, to put poverty back on the agenda and put poor people as, as agents of social change, you know, back in, in the public life. To what extent do you think consciousness about labor and labor rights is factoring into that? And, you know, there have been reports of young people joining unions and other signs that maybe as part of the post-Trump backlash or maybe just due to general frustration with the recovery not really helping many people recover uh, in reality um, is finally reaching a breaking point, but do, do you think that the recognition of the plight of poor people is translating into more institutionalized or, I guess, you know, movement-oriented forms of um, building equity into our workplaces, into civil society, etc.? So I think that labor rights, workers' rights, the right to form and join unions is so central to what this campaign is doing and what is needed in this country, right? And, and the, the right of people to be able to organize themselves and to organize life to be better for them and their communities um, is really at the heart of what it is to be an American, right? I mean, and so the fact that there are 62 million jobs, I mean, 62 mil- million workers who are being paid less than a living wage, the fact that there are no states in the United States where if you are making the federal minimum wage that you can afford a two bedroom apartment. I mean, that is a crazy statistic, right? Let's think about that for a minute that there's not a state in this union where if you're working a minimum wage job, even if you're doing it full time that you can afford a two bedroom apartment. I mean that there is a crisis. Um, and it's a it's a, a labor and worker and pay crisis. Uh, and it's a poverty crisis in this in this country. And so I think that people are tired of experiencing and living through that crisis. And what we have found traveling around the country is that, you know, low wage workers and other folks that are are struggling to make ends meet are coming forward saying it is time for us to do something, you know, radical. And that radical thing is to to organize across all the different lines that are divide us into a powerful movement to win living wage jobs, to win universal single payer health care, to win affordable housing for everyone, to win equitable education, to win free higher education for anyone who wants it and needs it, to win environmental protections, um, to win voting rights. And, and I think to see that low-wage workers and other poor folks um, and moral leaders and clergy um, are coming together to, to demand and organize to win those, those fundamental rights is really something. What do you think of the current landscape of progressive political organizing these days? I mean, there have been criticisms over the years as to everything from, you know, the standard why have we lost the white working class to, you know, are we reaching a diverse enough audience? And there have been periods of crisis before when it's felt like the left in this country isn't reaching who it needs to reach. 
And that might come down to who's running things in Washington, um, who's representing the Democratic Party right now. What do you think is lacking and, and how do you hope to fill that gap? So, you know, this movement isn't about left or right. It isn't about Democrat or Republican. It's about, you know, right and wrong. And and we don't say that because those are, you know, uh, we say that because what what is happening is that people of all walks of life, from all races, all creeds, all religions, all issue areas, uh, are are kind of coming together, recognizing that we can't win any major victory around systemic racism without winning around, you know, labor rights and, and anti-poverty rights. And, um, and we can't, uh, you know, really address poverty without looking at the connections to militarism and, and, uh, and ecology. And so I think what, what we're seeing is that as we travel around the country, that people have stepped forward and want to come together in, fusion kind of ways. And in, in our country's history, when poor people and impacted folks have banded together, you know, with moral leaders and with others, that's when change has been able to happen. And I think we're seeing the beginnings of a, a, a new movement. Um, and that movement has the, the power to, to win, um, to win a lot, right? To kind of win everything. And, and not just, you know, try to have this issue over there and this group and demographic over here. And, and so I think that the visionary kind of demands and, and organizing model that this campaign is following is, is a reflection of, you know, a new potential political moment um, and, and the kind of pulling together of, of, an, of a new budding social movement. And that social movement, you know, is, has the power to change everything. One of the common criticisms of really broad-based movements is that they tend to cast too wide a net or that there's mission creep or that the message ends up getting diluted because it's too broad. But of course, you know, your movement is also referencing a historical movement uh, that very much was effective precisely because um, it cast such a wide net. So can you talk about like why it's necessary to tackle all of these things? Talk about some of the potential and maybe some of the potential risks involved when you try to tackle all of these intersecting issues. So I think, I think this is a really important question, right? I mean, I think when people, if people are going to kind of worry or criticize and say, you know, you're, you're trying to do too much. You're, you're trying to, you know, unite too many people. I think the, the reply is, is that these connections, these demands are coming out of grassroots communities that are in struggle right now. And that you can't separate out in the life of someone who's poor. You can't separate out you know, war over here and wages over there and environment over here and voting rights over there, um, folks embody all of those problems and issues and, and see the connections to if they're experiencing injustice, then anyone that's experiencing injustice, you know, is their friend and ally and partner in struggle. And so I think what we're what we're seeing is not like a list of different issues that we're trying to to focus on, but instead, you know, the coming together of, 
you know, an actual fusion movement, you know, where it becomes very clear, you know, and if we if we make that historical reference that you were talking about in terms of Dr. King, right, you know, he he said that we can no longer, you know, separate civil rights and racial justice from economic justice. And he said, what good is it for us to be able to go to a lunch counter if we can't afford a, a hamburger? You know, and, and right now there are people of all races who can't afford basic things like food and water and housing. And much of how policies are being passed that, that criminalize homelessness or don't expand Medicaid Many of those policies are being passed due to racist voter suppression and the electing of candidate of, of politicians who use racism to get elected and then pass policies that hurt people across racial lines. And so I think to see um, the connections. So we did this mapping process. We said, what are the 23 states that passed voter suppression laws since 2010? And those 23 states. If you overlay a map of what are the states that have the highest poverty rates, you find it's the same states. What are the states that have the highest child poverty? It's the same states. What are the, the states that don't have minimum wage and living wage laws? It's the same states. What are the states that, that have the least protections for immigrants? It's the same states. What are the states that don't have environmental protections? It's the same states, right? And so, so you can see that intersectionality of the problems. And so if the people in power who are benefiting from racism are benefiting from keeping low wages, who are benefiting from from destroying the environment, are able are cynical enough to be together, are cynical enough to to oppress us all, then are we hopeful and smart enough to see that we can only win labor rights and living wages if we at the same time connect around racism, around environmental issues, around war, and build a, a deep moral movement that unites us all into something where we can have and build the power to be able to hold our elected officials accountable to the society in which we want to be living in. Part of this is obviously about engaging officials and um, making sure that the institutions that are supposed to represent us in government are, are doing that job. Um, what are some of the guiding principles that you have in determining whether or not to seek help directly from official channels versus maybe seeking more community-based solutions? And perhaps there's been too much of a trust in public officials and in government, uh, in the electoral process as something that might deliver us, you know, the benefits that we need. So in the 2016 presidential election, there were 25 debates. One of those debates in the primary or the general election took up the issue of voting rights and, and, and discussed the fact that we have fewer voting rights today than we did 50 years ago. Now, one of those debates took up poverty. Um, and the proliferation of poverty um, and the 140 million poor people in this country. Now, one of those debates took up living wages or universal single-payer health care or, you know, the militarization of our communities and, and the, this war economy that we're every, that 53 cents on every discretionary dollar is spent on the military when only 15 cents 
are spent on anti-poverty programs, on, on programs for, for kind of labor rights and, and education and healthcare, right? And so what that shows us is that if they were able to go through one of the most expensive elections ever, and there could be 25 or 26 debates, and the issues that are affecting the majority of the people the majority of the time didn't, didn't get discussed, didn't get debated out, that at this point, we have to shift what this nation is paying attention to and what our candidates and elected officials need to be talking about. And we need to then build the power of people from the ground up to hold then folks accountable to the problems that are happening. And so actually a lot of what we're building in the Poor People Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is that political power of people and calling attention to the issues that are facing us today. So we, we definitely want to impact um, politicians. We definitely want to impact elections. But at this point in our struggle, you know, the main goals of this campaign is to get us to have a real adult conversation about the issues that are plaguing our, our nation, an adult conversation about the demands and solutions to those problems, and to the, then build the power of people to hold people accountable and responsible for society being the way it needs to be. And so, you know, in, in the way that we organize, we don't open the platform for politicians or candidates to speak. Our coordinating committees um, across the, the 40 states where we're organized, um, they don't have elected officials and candidates um, playing leadership roles. Not because we're not trying to impact the elections, but because we think that the impact we can have on the nation is by organizing the people and changing the discussion to be around poverty and racism and ecological devastation and militarism, right? And so, so this is, I think, really important in our strategy. We're not trying to win just one policy. We don't think just one program um, will change everything. We don't think if we just shift a couple of politicians that everything's going to be better. Um, but, but in fact, we need a movement, a movement of people from the ground up who will be in it for the long haul will be permanently organized to be able to, to make sure that the decisions that affect our lives are being made um, in a way that, that all lives are lifted up. When we talk about permanently organizing and organizing for the long term, maybe some people might have trouble um, envisioning what that looks like because we're used to you know, maybe a certain type of activism that tends to focus a lot on, say, social media or focus a lot on explosive, spectacular actions without necessarily a lot of thought towards the long-term institution-building aspect of really permanent systemic change. Can you maybe give a couple of solutions that you see either playing out today or that are crystallizing because of this movement that are about building institutions on the ground level? So I think that I, I've been very inspired by the organizing work that people are doing on a state level for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. In 39 states, there are coordinating committees that are made up of a huge diversity of people, um, poor folks, impacted folks, moral clergy, uh, other advocates and activists, 
um, people from all parts and all geographies, people that focus on all issues. And so what, what's been happening is that, that those coordinating committees have come together, you know, to help organize this campaign in their states. Um, and many of the folks that are a part of these committees have never worked together before, are, are just getting to know each other um, and the issues that each other have. And, and I think that that um, is, is really significant in terms of this campaign because what's happening is that, that those, those groupings, those coordinating committees, you know, th- this is just a campaign, right? We're not, we're not a new organization. We're not actually really trying to form an organization. But what we're trying to do is, is be a fusion movement where people from all kinds of different organizations and all kinds of issues can come together and, um, and do something coordinated together that then helps to, to bring us into a period of, of more organizing and of movement building. And so I, I think the examples that we have from, you know, from history say that, that it's not just about, you know, mobilizing bodies. It's not just about winning one particular piece of legislation. It's about building the power of people to, um, to be able to hold the, the wins in place. Um, so, you know, if, if teachers in West Virginia are organizing and, and winning amazing victories around education, how do we ensure that those amazing victories are not on the back of um, medical care cuts, um, are not on the back of food assistance cuts? And how do we not have to, you know, pit these issues against each other and pit people against each other? But how do we have, you know, these a form of organization and a form of movement building where where you know we're in this all together and and can then see how how we how we actually uh, uh, struggle for for social transformation and social change. Let's not forget that um, the teachers who are on strike also took time to make lunches for the kids. An amazing story, right? I mean, just like before. Every school was closed in West Virginia. Those teachers said, we see the connection, right? Like the kids that are going to our schools are experiencing poverty. And so we're going to make lunches. And I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's a beautiful example, right? I, mean, I love that you raised that because, I mean, it also just shows the goodness of people, right? You know, we've been traveling around this country. We've been meeting people that are a part of all kinds of struggles. And folks are you know, just want to do right. They just want life to be better for them and their communities. And they just are willing to put themselves out there and on the line to, to make it better. And that is not a story that is being told right now, but it is a story that when that happens in history, that's when change happens. Just to just, go back to the original historical reference point, um, can you compare the time that Dr. King was organizing in versus what we're seeing today and why you decided to pick that campaign as kind of your political uh, lodestar for organizing today and maybe how things are different this time around. Um, and we're, we're organizing it in sort of a new political era that still has all of these persistent problems. So we do definitely take great inspiration from the Poor People's Campaign of 1968 and we take inspiration from other movements um, in U.S. and world history where people have come together across lines that divide them to, 
you know, to to struggle for justice. And so, you know, I come out of a homeless and welfare rights organizing movement where, you know, there's amazing lessons from. Obviously, Reverend Barber, the other co-chair of the campaign, comes out of the Forward Together Moral Mondays movement, but then also obviously has roots in, 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 in other movements. I mean, we can draw connections back to abolition and to women's suffrage and to labor, and there's leaders from all of those different struggles throughout history whose kind of descendants are, are involved in this campaign today. But, but when you look at the 1968 Poor People's Campaign that Dr. King and others launched um, 50 years ago, I mean... There is a lot of unfinished business from there. Um, and the words that Dr. King had from 67 and 68, where he's connecting racism and poverty and militarism, um, where he's saying that, you know, though the Vietnam War was a war on the poor in the U.S. and a, across the world, when he's saying that racism and poverty and um, materialism are all, all instructably connected, that still rings true today. Now, Times are different. Um, you know, we did the Souls of Poor Folk audit, um, the Institute for Policy Studies, with some help from the Urban Institute and some economists and sociologists and scholars and impacted folks and policy people, you know, conducted this audit kind of looking comprehensively at the past 50 years. And, you know, what they found was that uh, things have really just gotten worse over the past 50 years, um, you know. Uh, when it comes to poverty, you know, 60% of people, more people are poor today than they were 50 years ago. When it looks at, when we look at systemic racism, I mean, again, we have fewer voting rights than we did 50 years ago. Uh, when it comes to the problems of militarism, we might not be fighting one war in Vietnam, but we're fighting multiple wars, um, declared and undeclared all across this country. I mean, all across this world. Um, and, you know, our military budget has, um, you know, is increased, you know, so much uh, over the past 50 years. And then an issue that, that was only kind of raised um, on the fringes of the 68 campaign um, by some poor young people in particular um, of the kind of destruction of our environment and everything living in it, I mean, has really emerged over the past 50 years. And so what we see is um, the issues that are affecting people um, you know, have only really gotten worse. Um, and at the same time as kind of social organization and social movement building and, and even labor organizing not being as strong as it was. You know, the Poor People's Campaign came off of, you know, decades of incredibly powerful organizing and movement building um, of the 50s and 60s. Today, there's amazing organizing going on, but in terms of a, a, a whole movement, in terms of linking up and connecting the dots, you know, we're still really trying to, to do a lot of that work, um, not just in the Poor People's Campaign, but I think folks that, that believe in social justice more generally. And so, you know, what that has meant for us is that the Poor People's Campaign and, and the tactics that we're using are not the same as what folks were proposing to do and did in 1968. So part of why we are organizing in 40 states and in Washington, D.C., is because of the importance of, of grassroots state leaders, again, organizing and, um, and, and building power bases in their local areas and, and in their states, in part because so many of the regressive policies that are being passed and so many of the more progressive policies that are not being passed are, are emanating from our state capitals. Um, but then also, uh, 
you know, we, we have set the 40 days of action because we didn't want to just say one of the things that happened in the 68 campaign was that people were, went to Washington and were supposed to just stay until all the demands were met. And we know that this, um, to, you know, to undo the kind of deep racism and poverty and, um, you know, all the issues that are affecting people in this country, those didn't come together overnight. And so it's going to take, you know, some deep and uh, broad organizing. Um, and so that, and, and so that's what this campaign is about is, is, you know, getting our, our nation to pay attention to the issues, to build the power of people and to be a launching pad. Um, and a launching point for a, a, a broader movement to, to get started. And given that you're in this for the long haul, um, what happens on day 41? And, and how do you make sure that people don't just go home to their communities and uh, and forget about what happened in Washington or um, in the state capitol, wherever they're marching? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where, I mean, so we're doing a major mobilization on June 23rd. And that isn't the culmination. That's a that's a gathering where we continue to you know make this country weep and wail and um, stop in its tracks and and pay attention to what's really affecting people. That's a moment when people commit um, to some very serious next steps of going back and continuing to organize. And what what we're even already finding before we even launched the 40 days and then definitely out of this week, you know, after the first, um, the first week of, of action is that, you know, new relationships and, um, new commitments have already formed. Um, and again, this is, this is the stuff that movements are made of. And so we've already in a very short period of time built something and done something that hasn't been done before. And so we know as long as that continues and people are committed to making it continue that that that's how real change is, is, is taking place. And I think that's why so many of the, the local leaders in the states, but then also so many of the national organizations and partners that have come on board with this campaign have done so is because folks want to be in it for the long haul and want this to be the launch of a deep organizing drive. That was Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. They are on the march until June 23rd, and you can find out more about their campaign on their website, poorpeoplescampaign.org, and you can sign up your own community to participate. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg! I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our pick for this episode of the piece we wish we had written but did not. My pick is by Gus Bova in Texas Observer. It's called Red State. Does Socialism Have a Future in Texas? And before you laugh, the answer is a resounding maybe? It's a pretty good deep dive, and not a naive one, but a very earnest one at what the prospects are for a real grassroots socialist movement, even perhaps a socialist political party in the red state. Uh, The Heart of Dixie is near and dear to me because I spent some time reporting there in the lead-up to the 2016 election, 
and even in the city of Houston, which actually is quite a liberal bastion in the middle of Texas, um, things seem to look really promising, but as we know, well, Texas did go red, as was predicted, um, and now all eyes are on the next election cycle. So the DSA has moved into the fore as one of the leading political forces on the ground there, on the progressive side. And let's admit it, when faced with the acronym DSA back in, say, 2014, 2015, even a longtime observer of the American left might be inclined to smirk, considering the Democratic Socialists of America to be a quaint vestige of a self-styled radical fringe born of partisan nostalgia. Meanwhile, mainline Democratic voters might be inclined to just wrinkle their foreheads and ask, who? These days, though, the DSA rivals the DNC as a powerful emblem of progressive national politics. And it's also a bit of an enigma, even for its own members. Many joined the movement shortly after the election, of course, in a surge of Sandrista hangover, Trump backlash, and a dash of anti-Clinton bitterness. But today, is the DSA a real political force to be reckoned with, or just a Green Party-ish like thorn growing in the side of the DNC apparatus. So what better testing ground for this newfangled movement than an emerging election battleground, right there in the middle of one of the reddest states in the Union. And having reported from there, I've seen how some parts of the state can create an impressive counter-narrative, and many Texans do actively and aggressively defy that conservative stereotype. So the observer follows the DSA as they navigate the fraught political landscape and slowly change hearts and minds. And they do it by reaching out to them on the issues that people care about on a micro scale. Guspova describes from a local's perspective how a movement grows itself. Quote, a rough analog for DSA might come from the political right, like the Tea Party of the early Obama years. DSA reaped the backlash to a controversial presidential election and swiftly became a home for those more radical than the mainstream parties. Now we know the Tea Party didn't invent the formula of local politics plus radical ideology, and in fact, once upon a time, Populism was the trademark of the progressive left rather than the revanchist right. But labels aside, the question is, can DSA revive the ethos of people power in a way that can actually move votes leftward, and more importantly, shift majorities? And sometimes it starts with lending not a voter registration form, but rather a helping hand. Quote, DSA members around the country have fixed drivers' brake lights for free, accompanied immigrants to check-ins with authorities, and raised $200,000 for the victims of the attack in Charlottesville. That's on top of canvassing extensively for single-payer health care, tenants' rights, and measures like Austin's paid sick leave ordinance, the first such policy to pass in the South. And Guspova adds, unlike the Tea Party, which eventually faded at the grassroots level, DSA hopes to bolster the left over the course of years. And the actual moving to action part is another place where their grassroots street cred might depart from that of the Tea Party. Quote, mutual aid can also be a tactic for reaching people otherwise scared off by the word socialism, argued Ali Cohn, a national leader from Knoxville, Tennessee. 
There are certain areas of the country where you have to show people who you are more than tell them, she said. It's easy for the left to curdle and recoil from mainstream politics and sheer disillusionment these days. Who can blame them? But a socialist program requires a good deal of sentimental empathy in addition to social solidarity. After many years of dwelling in the wilderness and sinking into a rather pathological level of navel-gazing, perhaps activists who have turned away from electoral politics might once again find a happy medium under the DSA banner. Not medium as in dumbing down your politics to grab more votes, but a medium as in creating a space and a community to expand your ideals and expand your reach to new people. Because, of course, you can't build a new movement if you're stuck in old ideas. You didn't need me to tell you that. And since we are living under a president whose platform was all about taking America literally back in time, Maybe rather than go with the flow, it's time to make a clean break and show people in everyday life that history really is on our side. That is, the left side. The task now is to make that left side very real for people in a right-wing section of the country. For this week's ARG, it's on a subject that longtime listeners are probably pretty familiar with by now, teacher strikes. And while I'm at it, shout out to the thousands who struck and marched in North Carolina on Wednesday of this week, May 16th. This piece is also by someone that our listeners are probably familiar with, Jane McAlevey. It is in The Nation, and it is called Teachers Are Leading the Revolt Against Austerity. What this piece does that I think is particularly important is trace the genealogy of the recent strikes through changes in teacher unionism in particular over the past few years, going back to Chicago, most obviously, but also the work being done in true blue states. Well, you know, except for when those blue states have occasional Republican governors like Massachusetts does right now, um, like California and Massachusetts. Jane writes, quote, teachers in Los Angeles, the second largest school district in the country, are already assessing the membership's willingness to start the next school year on strike if an agreement isn't reached by June. This isn't a red state issue, it's a blue state issue too, says Alex Caputo-Pearl, the president of the United Teachers of Los Angeles. The rank and file are going to take the fights to the Democrats who have been complicit in the attack on public education and teachers unions, end quote. And in Massachusetts, Jane writes, quote, such blue state activism and intra-democratic party feuding was presaged by Massachusetts in 2016 when the Massachusetts Teachers Association defeated a ballot measure that would have greatly expanded charter schools. A whopping $35 million in favor of the measure poured in from hedge funds and private equity groups. But in the end, the teachers who took a gamble by not coming to a legislative compromise that would have stopped the ballot in exchange for less charter expansion, defeated the measure by an almost two-to-one margin. The 113,000-member MTA was headed by a left-leaning rank-and-file president, Barbara Mattaloni, listeners to Belabored are familiar with Barbara as well, who had to overcome skeptics inside her own union who feared the public wouldn't back teachers. Mattaloni herself ran for president after being inspired by the 2012 Chicago Teachers Union strike, which came about after a slate of younger, more diverse teachers won election to CTU's highest post in 2010. Caputo, Pearl, and a team of progressively-minded teachers in California were next to win. End quote. So that building continues. A slate of progressive candidates swept the MTA's election just this month, providing a resounding endorsement for Mattaloni's vision of union reform. As Jane notes, these strikes are about the very future of public education and public goods. They are, then, strikes against austerity for a rebalancing of power in the states where they have taken place. 
But when the strikes have subsided, hey, you know, summer break is coming, the work will continue in state after state, whether they've seen recent strikes or not, among teachers who refuse to take it anymore and are doing the slow, long, hard work of building better unions, better public sectors, and by doing so, a better world. That is all we have time for today. Thank you, as always, to our sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you a belabored tote bag and our eternal gratitude. You can become a sustaining member or make a one-time donation at dissentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. Thanks also to our advertisers. If you are interested in supporting Belabored in this way, you can contact ads at dissentmagazine.org. You can also help spread the word about Belabored by sharing our links, rating us on iTunes, or your preferred podcast app. Thank you, too, of course, to our wonderful producer, Natasha Lewis, who has done a wonderful job on this show for over five years now. And as always, you can reach us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org if you are a graduate student worker or cafeteria worker, if you are part of the Poor People's Campaign or delivering food for a gig economy company or a worker co-op for that matter, if you are a teacher or a fast food worker or a socialist making red states red again, the right kind of red. You can also tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.